This podcast has been brought to you with the support of Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. With a Wise account, you can send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Whether you're traveling through Asia, freelancing in France, or buying that dream property in Oz, Wise is the easy way to connect all your finances internationally. You can even send money home to mum in minutes. Join 16 million customers and learn how the Wise account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com. Kia ora, I'm Damien Venuto and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. The Front Page is revisiting some of the major stories covered in 2022. August marked 25 years since Diana, Princess of Wales, died in a car crash in Paris. The shadow of her shock death still hangs over the British monarchy, which today finds itself embroiled in its most contentious period since the bitterness of the 90s as her children now find themselves fighting the same battles she once did. Documentary maker Ed Perkins released a film, The Princess, marking the anniversary and offering a fresh perspective on the story familiar to so many around the world. He joined us in August to discuss Princess Diana's legacy and how her public fight is mirrored in the royal battles unfolding today. Ed, 25 years since Princess Diana died, why do you think her legacy is still such a hot topic a quarter of a century on and what motivated you to tell the story? Well, that's a big question. Um, I don't think there's a simple answer to quite why we're so fascinated by Diana all this time later on. But, you know, the truth is that Diana still does find herself onto the front pages of our newspaper, at least in the UK, every month, it seems. You know, the starting point of the film, for me, was really born out of an experience that I had when I was 11 years old. You know, like millions of people around the world, I remember vividly where I was when I heard the news that Diana had died. The only other moment I can think of in my life where it really felt like time just kind of stopped and the world stopped on its axis was 9-11. But, you know, Diana's death really was a moment like that for me and I think for large parts of the world. You know that to be the most photographed car. Gosh, it is. The engine's pushed way back yeah. up into the... They haven't hit the front seat. They're lucky anybody's alive. Yeah. Well... Princess Diana dead. Oh, she died. Where's the remote? Oh, oh my God. You know, I remember vividly being an 11-year-old asleep, being woken up by my mom, who was really emotional, and then kind of all crowding around this little TV in my parents' room and and watching the kind of rolling news footage. And I just remember watching in the days afterwards these extraordinary scenes of tens and then hundreds of thousands of people take to the streets of London and, and, and the streets of big cities all around the world. And this unprecedented outpouring of grief, you know, there was just like this collective wave of emotion that came over people. And people were sort of grieving as though they'd lost their own mother or daughter or sister. And I guess as an 11 year old, I, you know, I was obviously sad that someone famous had died, but I, I, I don't think I was, I don't remember crying. I mean, my overriding emotion was just kind of confusion. You know, I remember just looking at the TV and being confused as to what was happening and why people were reacting 
as though they'd lost a family member, when the truth was that for most of us, you know, we'd never even met Diana. We only knew her through the press, through the archive. And so that's the sort of starting point is trying to understand what it was specifically about Diana or what she came to represent that created this kind of extraordinary bond, you know, and this extraordinary and complex relationship. You know, why was it that tens of millions of people came out in 1981 to cheer her on when she got married? Why was it that for the next 16 years that she was on this very most public of stages that we dissected everything she did, everywhere she went, everything she wore, everything she said? And then, as we've talked about, why was it that people reacted in this really unprecedented way? I don't think there's a simple answer to that. I suspect that one of the reasons why we are still talking about Diana today is that we are still, or a lot of people are still grappling with quite what happened and why. And for me, the more interesting question, which was like, what was our involvement in that story? What is our complicity in this tragic tale? Yeah, just picking up on that, your documentary does look at how Diana's perception in the media changed radically during her time in the spotlight. And it has changed even more since then. So do you just want to touch on that shift in perception presented through the media? And also, to some degree, the media's obsession with Diana through her life and now afterwards, too. Yes, I think you're right. The media was obsessed with Diana. But, you know, many films have been made about Diana to date. And often the focus of those documentary films is the media, the press, press intrusion, paparazzi. Obviously, that's a big part of this story. And we don't shy away from that in our documentary. You know, you you absolutely do see the worst excesses of press intrusion. You see the impact that it's having. You're there with the paparazzi hiding in the bushes, Mm -hmm. trying to spot Diana on a long lens while on holiday with their kids. You know, there's something deeply uncomfortable about seeing that footage. She spotted us. No, she hasn't. It's just because we're looking at her. Do you know how small we would be from there? But I guess, you know, for me, sort of blaming the press is, is sort of too simple. The truth is that, especially now more than ever in contemporary society, there is a complex relationship here between the public, us, and people in public life that is mediated by the press. And the more complicated and difficult question is what is our role in that? Because we are creating demand for stories. And when I look at the Diana story, what I see is over decades, I think subconsciously, many, many people, most of us, sort of turning her story into a a sort of national sitcom, a national soap opera for our own entertainment, for our own consumption. And We want the fairy tale, but at what cost and at whose expense? I suppose the viewing, as the viewing public, we sometimes cast ourselves as the observer and nothing more. And what you're trying to say here is that we're actually actively involved in determining what is covered, what we're interested in, determines what the media covers to some degree. So I suppose that feeds into your documentary too. I think that's exactly right. And I just, I think it's a difficult, more complicated conversation, you know. If I'm pointing the finger at anyone, it's first and foremost at me, you know, as a consumer of of media today. Diana was not perfect. You know, she was flawed and fallible like all of us. She had a complex, interdependent relationship with the press. You know, that is undeniable and complicated, and we explore that in the film. But I also think that we need to be honest with ourselves about our role in this story. I think in some ways, the Diana story can sort of be seen as an origin story, if you will, or 
things that are still playing out today, you know, stories that are happening, yes, within the royal family, but also more widely in celebrity culture and the way that we still continue to, to turn these stories into entertainment. I think what's happened is that functionally the royal family has through uh, misjudgment and ineptitude and a fair degree of stupidity turned itself into something of a, of a branch of the entertainment industry. And I'm not sure they're ever going to recover from it. I think they're, they're doomed to continue. Ed, why did you choose to avoid talking heads or new interviews for this documentary and rely solely on existing interviews and media footage? Is there partly an issue with many of the media and royal commentators having a slightly rosier view of Diana now than they did before 1997? Well, I'm not sure it's just uh, royal commentators. I think we all did. I mean, I think one of the fascinating things that happened back when she tragically died was that you know, we sort of forgot all the things we were saying the day before. I remember that final summer of Diana's life, and at least in the UK, there were many critical voices about what she was doing. There were rumours that she was going to move abroad. People were very critical of who she was spending time with. When she died in this awful, tragic way, suddenly she became a saint overnight. In a sense, the film is trying to bring to life or back to life that constant dialogue, that discourse that we were happening, not just in the final summer of her life, but all through her life. You're right that the traditional way to make a documentary like this would be to shoot headshot interviews with people who knew Diana, experts. That's sort of been done. You know, we've all watched those documentaries. And what we're aiming for in this film is to try to create something that is more present tense, that feels at least less mediated. The archive only approach, I hope, sort of picks you up as an audience and acts as a bit of a time machine. Have you been able to put in any small personal touches that will still make it very much your day? Um, have we been able to put in any small personal touches? Mm-hmm. I think by inviting one's friends and all people who've helped us. We inevitably bring our own emotional baggage, for want of a better word, to this story. Given that we're nearing the reality of Charles becoming king, was there any motivation for you in making this documentary to remind people of the way that he behaved in the 80s and the 90s? I mean, no, that's not our our intention. I mean, I think it's really important to say that we don't come into this film with any agenda. Hand on heart, we sort of come in not intending to make a pro-monarchy or anti-monarchy or a pro-Diana or anti-Diana. I mean, I guess one of the things I do come out of this film feeling is probably more sympathetic towards all the main people in the story than I perhaps had going into it. You know, I think it's a difficult job. It's a difficult life being born into that position. And on the whole, I think they are trying to do the best job possible um, among, you know, you know, under enormous scrutiny. That doesn't mean that they always get it right. Mistakes were made, have been made, will continue to be made. What's interesting for me is that if you go back to 1981 and the wedding, you know, there really was a kind of widespread feeling of reverence towards the royal family, at least in the UK. You know, there were some dissenting voices, but most people saw that wedding as a real beacon of hope, you know, in in what was a pretty difficult socio-political era. If you go to the end of our story, you know, 1997, the week after Diana died was a moment of real peril for the royal family Mm. where... They found themselves on the wrong side of public opinion and and it felt pretty fraught and the public were absolutely making their voice heard. And so we're sort of tracking that evolving and constantly shifting relationship. 
What montage in your movie details Charles mm. and Diana's trip to Australia and New Zealand where Diana yeah. proved so popular? She reversed public opinion on the monarchy in Australia, yet it did seem to cause a bit of internal backlash in that she proved a little bit more popular than Charles. I mean, is that popularity a double-edged sword for the royals? Enough of it helps to keep them relevant and on the public side, but too much of it can also be a bad thing internally within the royal family. I think that's probably true. One of the things that I thought a lot about in this film was what do we, and I think in the British, but also the public around the world, what do we want from royals or specifically the British royal family? Do we want them to be just like us? Do we want them to be open and transparent and approachable? Or actually, do we want them to be different and other and special and sort of retain that sense of magicness? And the truth is, we probably want both things at the same time. And Perhaps Diana exclusively was kind of able to offer that up to people. You know, perhaps that's one of the reasons she struck a chord with people, as you say, in New Zealand and Australia and all around the world, was she was somehow able to be both normal and sprinkle that royal stardust. Quite unique in being able to kind of walk that tightrope. Did you get a chance to see her? Yes! Diana has got the common touch. She can sit down. She can talk to anybody, whoever they are. I agree. I don't think the public expect the Queen to go to hospices and kiss AIDS patients. It'd be nice if she did, though, wouldn't it? I don't think that people expect that. But you, did like, you would like a Queen who actually yes. could talk to ordinary people. Well, she, she doesn't have the common touch in the same way. That, that's well, why Diana is so special. She can't because she wasn't brought up to that. Well, You've also spoken about the echoes of Diana's life reverberating through the present, and we're potentially seeing a bit of history repeating itself with Harry and Meghan. They obviously did that big Oprah interview and there are some rumours of them working with authors and journalists on expose books. And now Harry has a memoir. Does it worry you to see such similar narratives playing out? And is that really where the currency of this documentary comes from? I wouldn't dare to, to, to offer any advice to Harry or anyone in the royal family. You know, he himself has talked about a fear of history repeating itself. When we first started making this film at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, it was around the same time that Harry and Meghan were leaving the UK and moving to the US. And it really struck all of us that were making the film that there was a similarity there in as much as when Harry and Meghan left the UK, it seemed to be the only thing that most people in this country wanted to talk about for days and weeks, you know, and it caused enormous rifts. You know, people took very, very strong and polarised positions. They took sides. There were huge arguments in, in the press and on TV and within families it reminded me very much of the similar discussion that was happening all throughout Diana's adult life. And so I think we did feel that, you know, first and foremost, it's sad. You know, this is a family that was going through tensions and disputes like all families do, but it was being played out on this kind of most public of stages. When you look at the complicity between the viewing public and the media in terms of making spectacles out of the royal family, do you think that we need to kind of evolve our approach and perhaps change how we interact with the royals to ensure that these tragedies don't happen again? I think that's a really good question, and I don't propose to have any answer to that. You know, I'm also highly aware that, um, and you haven't asked this directly, but I have before, you know, we could be accused of hypocrisy because inevitably we are making a film here that is leaning on this speculation that is leaning on this paparazzi footage and press intrusion i'm aware of that highly aware of it and it's something we talked about a lot i hope that when people get to the end of our film they 
understand that we've tried to tell a complex story with a lightness of touch and with nuance and subtlety and without an agenda and that yes we are using this footage and having to use the speculation but we are doing it in good faith to make this bigger point now one of the most controversial royal interviews ever is the martin bashir one do you really believe that a campaign was being waged against yes i did absolutely yeah why Mm. I was a separated wife of the Prince of Wales. I was a problem, full stop. Never happened before. What do we do with her? Why did you choose to use clips from that, given that Bashir's methods in obtaining access have undergone some scrutiny recently? Yeah, I mean, we're obviously aware of the sensitivity here. And and what I would say is this, you know, our feature documentary tells the story of Princess Diana exclusively through contemporaneous archive from the time and without any commentary from today. And as such, we do briefly include excerpts from the panorama interview, um, but they're being used as moments of the historical record. And that moment, it was a pivotal, if deeply unfortunate moment in her life, but it was a moment of the historical record and we've included it as such. Ed, as you were pouring through all these hours of footage to make this documentary, the royal family has gone through a period of enormous turbulence with the Sussexes, the death of Prince Philip and Prince Andrew's ostracization. Do you think the royals have learned anything ultimately from the Diana saga or is this family the same now as it was in the 90s? That is a really interesting question. There's a line in the film which I think is really fascinating and it comes from Diana herself. And she, and I'm paraphrasing, but she essentially says that she hopes that the monarchy, the royal family could walk more hand in hand with the public rather than be so distant. That is interesting. And I think it's interesting because we in the UK have just gone through the Jubilee celebrations this summer. There was an enormous concert in front of Buckingham Palace that was, I think, a a conscious and clear attempt to try to bridge that gap between monarchy and and public. And there was a very famous scene where the Queen had tea with Paddington Bear. Happy Jubilee, ma'am. And thank you for everything. That's very kind. You know, I don't know if that is a direct consequence of the impact that Diana had on the royal family, but it all seems to talk to that thing Diana's talking about, which is to walk more hand in hand with the public. And, you know, inevitably, people at the heart of the royal family now, and in particular, William, who the older he gets, the more influence he has, you know, he is Diana's child and is the product of that upbringing and all the things that both Charles and Diana did. And one of the things Diana specifically lent into was trying to expose him as a young child to people from different walks of life and people who have gone through troubles in their life and took him to local charities and hospices around London. And I think you do see that play out in his character today. And so I think it's inevitable that some of those qualities of Diana and characteristics are there in both Harry and William, and therefore, obviously, in the case of William, will impact the way that the monarchy goes forward and the decisions it takes. Thanks for joining us, Ed. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Sean D. Wilson with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Damien Venuto. Subscribe to The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon for another look behind the headlines.